Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll explore how dreams sometimes have a role in the grieving process. In terms of context, the dreams tended to come during periods of high emotionality. Usually that was the first couple of months after the death. Then we'll learn about some of the issues faced by sexual and gender minorities. There are a lot of factors that play into someone's sexual orientation. It does look like there are some genetic factors, but there are also some uh, environmental ones. And we'll hear how ethics consultants help families navigate tough hospital choices. We're available to anybody to get involved and try to help resolve disagreements, identify issues, clarify misunderstandings. We don't make decisions. We give advice. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse, but first, the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about gender identity and how that differs from sexual orientation. Then we'll talk about some of the issues families face when making life or death decisions. But first, we'll learn how dreams during the grieving process can be helpful in healing. me today is Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer. He's a licensed clinical psychologist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate, and he's the primary psychologist at the Upstate Cancer Center. And today he's going to talk about the research that he's done on the role of dreams. So thank you for being here. Thanks again for having me. Yes. Pleased to be here. So it's a fascinating um, topic, uh, the role of dreams in grief and loss. So what have you looked at? Yeah. Uh, so in my uh, doctoral studies, uh, I was introduced to post-Jungian psychology, specifically the, the work of James Hillman in archetypal psychology uh, through my mentor, uh, Dr. Roger Knudsen. And uh, for my master's thesis, uh, we collaborated on a project in which I looked at the role of dreams uh, in the calling to religious service. Okay. okay. And we so were... So people who wanted to become priests or exactly. nuns? Exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh, he and I were talking with one participant uh, who became a Protestant minister. And uh, in her story of calling, you know, she shared about the, the death of her brother, to whom she was very close. Okay. Uh, and how dreams played a, a very important role in uh, grieving that loss and, and also her calling to service. And she also shared with us that in her ministry, you know, this is a, a very common experience that she has, um, that she will sit down with congregants who've experienced a loss. And she said to us, I always know when it's coming because it's prefaced with, this may sound crazy, but in the context of grief. And then uh, inevitably they go on to share, you know, I, I had this uh, waking experience of my, my loved one talking with me. Uh, I had a, a dream uh, in which they um, told me that everything was going to be okay. And these experiences with the deceased loved ones were, were deeply moving uh, and, and really uh, meaningful in terms of their grieving process. So I, I, too, was moved by that story and uh, for my dissertation project, wanted to look more specifically at the role of dreams in the, the grieving process. Um, so I examined the experience and meaning of dream encounters with the dead for the bereaved. And specifically, I asked how and when the dead appeared to the bereaved in dreams. And second, what's the significance for the bereavement process? And to explore these questions, I interviewed four participants using something called a narrative method in which I asked them to simply tell the story of their relationship with the deceased. And I wanted to know that in order to understand how the, the character of the deceased and their relationship with the deceased informed the grief story 
and, and that's the second part that I asked about. Tell me also about the story of your bereavement. So were these people who lost um, family members, spouses, children? What? Uh, yes, uh, yes to all except children. Um, one, one young woman uh, lost her father to prostate cancer. Uh, another woman lost her uh, husband to a ruptured brain aneurysm. And interestingly, I also interviewed uh, his granddaughter, so the, the, woman's gr uh, the woman's granddaughter as well, and how both of them had dreams of him and how um, talking about that, those dreams was profoundly healing for them as well. Um, and I, I also interviewed uh, a woman whose mother died of a, a ruptured brain aneurysm as well. So these could have been or were sudden losses and also losses that could have been anticipated. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the young woman whose father died of prostate cancer, I, I think that had happened over the course of at least several months. Okay. Um, so there also were, were dreams anticipating that loss too, okay. uh, which were significant for her. Did you find similarities in the, the narratives that you put together? Did you find similarities in them? I did. Uh, you know, talking specifically about the, the dreams, um, you know, I use this, this word phenomenology. You know, that's a fancy word of saying um, how something is experienced, okay? How something is experienced, uh, particularly in, in consciousness. And for all participants, uh, the encounter dreams were experienced as intensely vivid and felt, okay? And they were highly memorable afterwards. Uh, with few exceptions, the dreamers were all aware that their loved one had died within the dream. However, rather than diminishing the impact of the encounter within the dream, it served to amplify it. Hmm. So there was this, this double awareness. Uh, I know this person is dead, and yet I'm relating to them as if they're real. And it wasn't a sad experience. Um, the dream wasn't sad. Uh, sometimes, in most cases, not. In most cases, uh, it was um, you know, profound loving feelings, feelings of comfort, feelings of reassurance, um, this sense that I can have an ongoing relationship with this person, that they're, they're not gone absolutely, um, that in, in the medium of dreams, you know, we can visit with one another again. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So did, were there any other findings that you took away? Yes. Uh, the deceased sometimes appeared in ways that were surprising, bizarre, disturbing, and mm. awesome, which enhanced the intensity and memorability of the dreams. For instance, the, the young woman whose father died of prostate cancer, um, he, he knocked on the, the front door to their house, the dream house, though. And as soon as he stepped over the threshold, he transformed into a baby and wow. jumped into her arms, and uh, she cradled him. And uh, I bring that up not just to, to talk about the unusual forms the dead can take, but also the importance of physical contact. Uh, that physical contact within the dream can also uh, enhance the, the felt experience as well as the, the memorability and the significance. Um, I find that in, in the waking experience, the bereaved are often craving that physical contact, mm -hmm. um, that the dead continue to be present for them psychologically and emotionally, but really they want to, they want to touch them. They want to embrace them. And they're afforded that experience in the dream. That's interesting. Does it, was there any meaning, um, to the, the loved one becoming a baby? Did that, do you read anything into that? Um, is it turning back the hands of time? Is it, Hmm. Or was there, you know, in, in a way, I, I think that for the dead to appear in, in unusual forms like that aided the, the grieving process. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the character of the dead and their relationship with the bereaved. Uh, in this example, uh, father was the, the epitome of strength and stability for this young woman. And, and much of the distress that she experienced in the, um, 
beginning of her grief had to do with, you know, this pillar of strength has died. So what does strength mean to me now? Secondary loss, right? Um, but for him to, to transform in that way, you know, that's transforming her role identifications with her father. Maybe um, learning that she can do it. Yes. She can. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Yes. Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychologist Jeffrey Schweitzer about dreams and grief. Um, so tell me about, the, you've talked about the woman who lost her father to prostate cancer. Tell me about, was it a woman who had lost her husband? Yes. To a brain aneurysm? Yes. And uh, interestingly, in that case, she had a dream. Uh, I would characterize it as a prophetic dream. Uh, two weeks before he had his aneurysm. And uh, she dreamed uh, it. She didn't see anything, but she heard his name and uh, the year that he was born. In the dream. She heard In the his dream, name. yes. Hmm. And, and she woke up and her interpretation was, oh, my God, you know, he's going to die. Hmm. And two, week, two weeks later, he did die. Um, her belief was that that message was one from God. And it, it, was, it was given to her in order to prepare her for that devastating loss. Interesting. Yes. Um, did she talk to you before, or she just related that to you afterward? Afterwards. Uh, long afterwards. Yes. So did that, she do anything with the information or the feeling that she'd been talked to by God? Did she do anything with that in those two weeks? Um, I think I think mainly she just uh, steeled herself emotionally and, and psychologically for what she believed to be this imminent loss. Wow. And uh, it did spur a lot of dialogue uh, with God, a lot of prayer um, about, well, if 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 you must take him away from me, then you're going to have to support me. Hmm. Um, and this was a, a really significant precursor to what later transpired in her grief narrative um, because this loss precipitated um, a spiritual calling for her. Really? Yes. Well, um, so it's common for people who've lost a loved one to, to dream about that person. Yes. Do the dreams happen the day after they die? Do they happen weeks later, months later? When do they come? Um, before, during, and, and after. All of the above. Yes. Okay. Um, now, I, I will say that in terms of context, uh, the dreams tended to come during periods of high emotionality. Um, usually that was the first couple of months after the death or a couple of months before the death. If, if they knew that it was coming. Okay. Um, and that was certainly the case with the, the young woman whose father died of prostate cancer. Uh, she was able to, to say goodbye to him in a dream before he, he physically died, oh. uh, which had been precluded by the, the family system and, and how they were dealing with that loss um, and, and really not able to talk about it. Uh, but she was able to to talk with him in the context of the dream. And the dreams can help people heal. Yes. If, if mm. uh, okay. And for her specifically, she said that that dream uh, afforded me some sense of closure, if you will. Um, not necessarily ending that the relationship altogether, you know, but that she could have that important conversation with him. Um, and in the dream, she also gave him permission to let go. You know, the, he is the, the strong man, as, as we talked about, sure. and he had been fighting cancer all the way. Um, and I think suffering in, in large part because of that fight. So if the dreams that people experience can be helpful in healing and, and soothing somewhat, um, is there a way to precipitate them, to make them happen every night? Mm. Unfortunately, um, that I didn't find that, um, and that's part of what made the dreams so significant. Uh, is that um, they just kind of seem to to come out of well, I won't say nowhere. The, the dreams did tend to come when the when the bereaved needed them most. Huh. Uh, however, uh, th there's nothing that they could do to really force that. 
except to perhaps attune themselves to their emotional suffering um, and, and longing for, for the deceased. Interesting. Yeah. Well, my guest has been Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer. He's the primary psychologist at the Upstate Cancer Center. Thank you. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. faced by sexual and gender minorities on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. talking about gender and some of the stigma that comes from not being a male who likes females or a female who likes males. We have with us Leanna Huffaker, who is in her sixth year of training in clinical psychology at Upstate and expects to earn her doctorate in August. She's going to walk us through some of the issues faced by sexual and gender minorities. Welcome to HealthLink, Leanna. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Well, when we hear about LGBTQ individuals, um, who are we talking about? What do those letters stand for? LGBTQ stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer or questioning. Um, There's been a lot of debate over how many letters to include in that acronym, but I generally think of LGBTQ as kind of a broadly encompassing one. Queer is sometimes an umbrella term that can encompass a lot of identities that aren't encapsulated in those specific labels. So not, like non-mainstream? Yeah, topic. yeah. There's, there's really an emerging culture of people uh, becoming empowered by developing their own labels that really fit their unique selves, whether that's in terms of gender or in terms of sexual identity. Interesting. Well, you've done um, some research I want you to tell us about that looks at how these individuals are served by the medical system. Um, And perhaps there's some lessons to be learned, not just by doctors and nurses, but by other industries and society at large. What have you, you, what's your research done? Well, my research is more broadly focused on prejudice in general. uh, But one area of interest I have is how prejudice and stigma in the broader community inhibits sexual and gender minorities often from getting, gaining access to health care as well as a variety of other services. Um, there's definitely pushback um, from a lot of organizations, systems, etc. that makes LGBTQ people feel like they uh, aren't welcome. Do um, LGBTQ LGBTQ people seek out physicians and nurses who are LGBTQ? Not necessarily, but they definitely seek out physicians and care providers who have a good reputation. So word of mouth is huge. If they hear about a doctor who is very knowledgeable and um, supportive around, say, transgender issues and transitioning, they will spread the word and um, other people will seek them out as well. Okay, all right. So what are some of the issues um, faced in, in medicine um, dealing with lesbian, gay, tr- bisexual, transgender? What are, what are they uh, running up against? Well, I think one of the biggest issues is just lack of knowledge. Um, typically in training for a lot of uh, healthcare professionals, addressing specifically LGBTQ issues is very limited and so they're dealing with their own lack of familiarity and that can really create a lot of anxiety for folks and so uh, something that a lot of LGBTQ people have experienced in trying to access health care is being uh, in the role of educating their provider or being told that because they don't have that knowledge that they can't treat them. So finding physicians that are um, not familiar with their lifestyle or how they live mm-hmm. and what their needs might be based on that. Right. Okay. Um, what about, uh, I've seen 
I've seen mention that HIV infection rates, substance use rates, suicide are higher in this community. Yes, um, all those things uh, are a, a problem for the LGBTQ community, particularly those who are transgender. Um, they're all typically at higher risk than the broader uh, non-LGBTQ majority, but those who are transgender are at particularly high risk for HIV, uh, for suicide, and a lot of other health risks, uh, a lot of mental health risk in that population as well. So issues that could really be helped by the medical... Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, Now, let's talk about terminology. Um, Sexual orientation, what does that mean? Sexual orientation is uh, essentially who you are uh, romantically and or sexually attracted to. Um, What's the difference between romantic attraction and sexual attraction? Well, for some people, they may find that they are more romantically drawn to one or more genders, but not necessarily sexually. So this is a fairly recent distinction that's getting made in kind of the LGBTQ community, parsing out and um, really self-reflecting on what your proclivities are. Sometimes the sexual attraction and the romantic attraction don't align in the same way. Okay. Is sexual orientation, what determines that? Are you born one way or sexually oriented in one way? or That's still up for a lot of debate. Um, there are a lot of factors that play into someone's sexual orientation. It does look like there are some genetic factors, but there are also some uh, environmental ones. Um, and there's, there's really not a lot of clarity as far as how all of those things interact in order to produce various sexual orientation outcomes. So it's still being looked at. Yes. So I've heard the term pansexual. Yes, that essentially means that uh, someone who identifies as pansexual is attracted to people no matter what their gender presentation. So that includes those who may be transgender, male, female. Um, Their attraction is, is not based on kind of gender expression or biological sex, it's more just their connection with the person. Is, is that different than bisexual? Yes. Uh, those who identify as bisexual um, are attracted to both uh, female and male or male uh, women and men. Um, and that doesn't necessarily encompass transgender folks. So pansexual is a more inclusive term that has become more more popular with uh, younger folks who are a lot more open with their sexuality. This seems um, very complicated, and I'm thinking about the forms that we often have to fill out for a variety of reasons where you have a box to check male or female. Right. It seems like that's maybe inadequate now. Yeah, that's that's really uh, pigeonholing a lot of folks who may feel when they're faced with that male-female box or if um, they're only faced with uh, kind of typical heterosexual partner options that there's not necessarily a place for them. So one one thing that uh, people can do to try and help LGBTQ folks feel more welcome is to broaden your paperwork. Um, that's kind of one of the first things people encounter when they're entering, say, a healthcare office. And having male, female, transgender, and even just an other with a line for people to write in their own uh, self-identifier can make a big difference. Okay. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Laina Huffaker, a clinical psychology doctoral intern at Upstate. Now, we've done previous shows where we've talked to an expert about intersex, which is the condition of having sex characteristics that do not fit the typical definitions of male or female. Um, I gather that involves a person's biological sex, the way, the way they were born, right? Correct. Okay. So what is gender identity? 
Gender identity is really how you view yourself, the uh, sense of yourself as a gendered person, whether that is one particular gender, some people uh, are feeling more comfortable identifying themselves as actually a gender or gender fluid or gender neutral, um, which really kind of broadens the sense of oneself as a gendered person. So your gender identity may not match the gen the anatomical gender you were born with. Exactly. Um, in um, the LGBTQ community, it's fairly common for folks to say that perhaps their biological sex was what they were assigned at birth. And yeah, their gender identity may or may not align with that. So um, the word, I've heard you use the word queer a few times, and that used to be a derogatory term. Right. Is it not? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some people still aren't the biggest fans of that term. Um, it's become more accepted, um, but there are still some folks who really feel the, the stigma of that term because of its pejorative history. But it's kind of shifting into more of an inclusive, empowering term. The, the community is, is right. taking it back. Okay. And then um, the use of gender fluid, when you talk about, um, is that like a day-to-day -day gender fluid? One day you feel more feminine and one day more masculine or yeah yeah it certainly can be um folks who identify that way may really um try to express their identity in a variety of uh gendered ways so one day they may want to embody more of a kind of stereotypically feminine gender persona um, and their identity of being gender fluid kind of is the base from which they do express that. Okay, and then there's androgyny as well, which is? That's um, kind of in between, in between. Uh, stereotypic male and female, and that can look really different for a variety of people, but typically folks who identify as androgynous are embodying some both ma uh, masculine and feminine characteristics in their expression as, as well as how they identify and how they feel. So it's more than just how they, what they put on to wear. Right. It's maybe how they speak, how they, how they feel, how they express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. All those things may be kind of a blend and it may be, um, more masculine or more fem feminine, but, uh, it is some sort of blending of the two. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned earlier um, the Two-Spirit. What, what is Two-Spirit? Two-Spirit is a traditional Native American identity that um, is, an, again, kind of a blending of masculine and feminine. Uh, Two-Spirit people held a special role in a lot of tribes in America and still do. Um, and often they were uh, in the role of like shaman or spiritual leaders in the community. And uh, this, this is a, a, a specific term. And so there is some pushback in the native community uh, toward non-native people who are adopting that term uh, oh. because it's kind of separated from the cultural legacy of that. So was Two-Spirit in Native American culture, is that um, a positive thing? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, it, uh, it drew some negative attention as um, the Native people were uh, colonialized and oppressed by the incoming white folks who didn't really understand that. And so it, it kind of took on more stigma. But... Um, Folks are trying to preserve that that cultural heritage. Interesting. All right. Well, let me ask you: Does um, does a person's biological sex have anything to do with whether they're attracted to men or women? Like the way they're born, does that have anything to do with what what they desire as they grow up? No. I mean, statist statistically, maybe yes, but uh, there's there's really no evidence to say conclusively that being biologically male or female automatically means you will be attracted to the opposite sex. Um, and so 
emphasizing the difference between gender identity and sexual orientation is really important to me because they often get conflated. Well, and how does gender identity, does that have anything to do with sexual desire? No, not necessarily. It, um, gender identity is really more about your own internal sense of self and your attraction to others is, is really separate from that. It may affect how you interact with those people that you're attracted to, whether you're taking on uh, various masculine or feminine roles, but that's also not tied to any specific behaviors or anything like that. It, they really are separate. Well, thanks very much. My guest has been clinical doctoral intern Laina Huffaker. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, politics and religion, or crossing the divide. Well, folks, you know, a lot of people distrust PhDs like me. They think and sometimes say we're head in the clouds when they're being polite. <laughs> and we don't have a clue about people's day-to-day -day lives. No doubt that's true sometimes. For example, if you're a regular listener, you know every once in a while I talk about making relationships better by, quote, joining on what we have in common rather than separating over our differences, especially when we have a big disagreement and we're tempted to fight. Some people find that idea useful, but others have said, what do you mean joining on what we have in common? Too abstract, doctor. Well, here's an example. At my extended family reunions, there are people of many different political and religious persuasions. After having had some rather irritating conversations over the years, I now follow the old maxim of avoiding divisive discussions of political and religious differences. But inevitably, some folks like to raise a ruckus by poking at one side or the other's values, and one of my cousins, who I find very close-minded, likes to poke at mine. With the idea of listening to opposing views to learn something, when he pokes rather than debating, I now ask him to tell me more about his point of view, with genuine interest in understanding how he sees the world. When I did this recently, he eventually said that he really values that people in the U.S. have the constitutional right to voice their opinion, no matter what it is. And while I had disagreed with much of what he had said before then, that I could totally join him on. I also feel really listening and struggling respectfully and openly towards understanding each other is a gift America offers to all, and I said so wholeheartedly. And right then, I felt more respect for him, despite all of our differences, and he seemed more open to my point of view after that. Why, he even asked me a few questions. Now that was a real surprise. So listen and learn. I'm Rich. Two ears, one mouth, O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, how ethics consultants help families facing life or death decisions. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The intersection of law and medicine is often contentious territory, especially when it involves medical malpractice. But equally important are those cases that arise concerning medical ethics when patients are being cared for within a hospital or a like institution. Here to help us understand how these very thorny and sometimes murky cases are deliberated and resolved are Dr. Thomas Kerr, an assistant professor of pediatrics and of bioethics and humanities at Upstate Medical University, and Robert Olick, an attorney and associate professor of bioethics and humanities. He's also chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University. And both of my guests serve as ethics consultants. Thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate it. So both of you um, serve as, as I said, you have an important role at Upstate University Hospital. Um, Let me start with you, Dr. Kerr, and explain what that role is exactly. As a consultant, what so, is it to be a consultant, an ethics consultant? An ethics consultant is a service that the, the university hospital offers. We are available seven days a week from 8 to 5, and anyone, it's a, one of the few consults that anyone can call in. So family member, staff member, physician, nurse, it's uh, open to uh, anyone who wants to discuss what they feel to be an ethical dilemma with their, their care or the care of a loved one. So you and, and Mr. Olick basically serve in that capacity. So either one of you could be called, for example, in one of those circumstances. Is that uh, right? Yeah, that's correct. We have a consult service that um, currently has uh, three faculty members um, and at other times have had a greater number. So we rotate taking call uh, according to the schedule that was just um, articulated. Um, And uh, we're available to anybody to get involved and try to help resolve disagreements, identify issues, clarify misunderstandings. Um, But it's also important for people to know that we don't make decisions. Um, We give advice, um, but we don't make decisions. The uh, authority uh, and the right and the responsibility uh, to make decisions uh, continues to rest within the confines of the doctor-patient and family relationship. That's very interesting. I've also alluded in the, in the introduction that there is an ethics committee. How is that the same or different from your role as a consultant? Well, it's different. So once upon a time, they had overlapping functions. So when ethics committees first emerged, and you could date that to the late 1970s into the 1980s, um, Ethics committees serve three sorts of functions, uh, policy review, uh, education, and consultation. But over time, one of the reasons that consultation has been taken out of the role of many ethics committees and is not part of our function uh, is that from a purely practical standpoint, um, it's challenging to get a committee together to deliberate on an ethical and, and challenging issue. Um, usually, on short the, notice, usually there's time. It's time sensitive. It's thing. time sensitive, and so having one person um, available to do that to respond, uh, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, and it, it, we also work sort of as a team. So one of us may be the primary consultant, but we work with each other, uh, and we have uh, monthly meetings to review the cases and and uh, see how things went. And now you're a physician, Dr. Curran, and you're an attorney, Mr. Olick. What are, how do your backgrounds, I mean, what does it take to become an ethics consultant? I mean, what, what in your backgrounds facilitates that? Well, for, speaking for myself, I, I, my job as a physician, I am in intensive care of the newborn. And that area of medicine is fraught with many difficult ethical dilemmas, particularly with the extremely premature infants. And I became interested in how do we make decisions in, in this ethical gray zone and uh, I followed up that interest by volunteering to be an ethics consultant at Krauss uh, back in 1992. And that was, was the school of the seat of my pants, uh, just experience. And then uh, I was uh, joined up with the, the university, and, and uh, Dr. Faber Lagandun is the chairman of that, or, or the head of our ethics consulting service. Uh, and once again, it's, it's, uh, there is no set pathway for how you become an ethics consultant other than being interested and uh, being open to peer review, in our case, on a monthly basis. And Dr. Right. Mr. So, so it's an important question that's being uh, debated and worked on in the bioethics field. Um, there are currently no standards, no specific um, qualifications or standards for how one becomes an ethics consultant or what sort of training or experience one ought to have. Um, 
there are some guidelines that have been developed, uh, for example, by the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, um, but they're in no way binding guidelines, uh, and they don't establish a path necessarily to becoming an ethics consultant. So it is, as, as Dr. Kern was just describing, a combination of uh, interest, um, self-education and training, um, and ethics consultants come from different relevant backgrounds. So doctors, lawyers, um, social work, uh, nursing, um, uh, those trained in philosophy, um, all relevant disciplines um, to bring to bear um, as consultants. Have there been a series of, for want of a better term, best practices that have been established as part of this? In other words, your methodology and your approach, is there is there a way that um, you come at these kinds of dilemmas, these kinds of conflicts that one could, you know, could talk about principles of approach? Well, I, I mean, I, as I say, I think our our peer review, our monthly peer review is really the, the, the way that we, for example, um, it's not unusual for us to talk to each other up to kind of mine the individual members' areas of expertise. And if Rob has a, a question about what a certain medical situation means, he'll just call me and say, what do you think is going on? How bad is this? And if I have a, a legal question, I'll call him. And we, 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 we're the super friends. We use each other's strengths to try and uh, deliver the most well-reasoned um, advice that we can. And as you mentioned, I think, um, Mr. Olick, that was very clear, you know, it was surprising to me in a way, <clears throat> is that no decision is offered, no pronouncement is made, but rather what? An advice? Um, advice or recommendation. So, for example, um, the vast majority of consults, we will, uh, at some point during the consult, whether during its course or when it's concluded, um, write a note in the chart. And that note typically uh, gives an explanation of what we identified as the issues, what we did, and what our recommendation would be. Now, the recommendation is not binding, but it's there. It's been expressed verbally, of course, but also it's in the chart, in the note, uh, for others to see as uh, time goes forward, uh, caring for the patient. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohn, along with bioethicists Dr. Thomas Curran and, and Robert Olick, and we're talking about the ethics of medical cases and issues that arise during hospitalizations. Um, so it's non-binding, but generally do the physicians who consult you take your advice? Is that what your experience has been? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I just want to add that, the, that from taking it from a historical perspective, you know, even as recently as the 80s, the patients basically did what the doctors said, and it was a very paternalistic model. And as you flash forward to 2016, patient autonomy has really risen uh, to the forefront of what's important in making decisions, and so patients don't patients don't have to do what the doctors say. And it's not setting up an oppositional relationship, but rather just noting the shift from paternalism to patient autonomy. And with patient with the rising patient autonomy, that's really created space for ethics consultants to operate in, because now we have two different parties trying to figure out what is the most appropriate way or reasonable way to proceed in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in the gray zone. And it seems to me that a lot of what your work uh, addresses is sometimes this notion of mediating in some way between family disagreements of some kind around the care of a patient. And, um, you know, especially when they're involved in the surrogate decision-making of some kind um, with this whole idea of healthcare proxy and all of that, especially when someone, their loved one, has lost their uh, decisional capacity. So let's talk very briefly about a case and how you've approached it. Let's take a sample case and I think that'll help illuminate the kind of work you do. Okay, so the the of course these are these are cases that have been de-identified, but they are they they have they have a basis in uh, cases that we've worked on in the past here at Upstate and Krauss. So we're we're asked to see an 85 year old man who had a complex past medical history, and he had been admitted to the hospital with an acute heart attack as well as renal failure, and he had undergone a trial of dialysis, but it was unsuccessful, and his kidneys were not going to come back. He was going to, um, uh, they were going to they remain in failure. And his two sons were insistent on continuing aggressive treatment, 
However, his pastor uh, had had previous conversations with the patient before he was admitted, and the pastor knew that he would not want to continue medical interventions in the situation. And in addition to that, the pastor had uh, mentioned that there was a living will floating around somewhere, and we were then consulted. So what happened? Well, um, the questions that, that I would ask in such a case would be, first and foremost, I'd start with the question, as an organizing principle, who decides? Who has authority and right to make this decision? So we're told that the patient, or it's implied in the description and the account from the provider, that the patient lacks capacity. But we don't know that for sure. Um, it's something that... Uh, we don't assess as ethics consultants. It's something a doctor has to assess, but also has to document. So one question would be, does the patient lack capacity, um, and has that been documented? Once you determine that, uh, then you have to see who the alternative decision maker or surrogate decision maker would be. Um, so we have a, a couple possibilities here. One is you have the two sons, um, and in the absence of a healthcare proxy appointment, they would have co-equal authority to make that decision. Um, there is reference to a possible living will, and so we want to track that down, see if there is a living will, see if it is a traditional living will that sets forth the patient's wishes, or if it also serves as a healthcare proxy, which might tell us uh, more clearly who has uh, authority to decide. Um, and tracking down that living will um, is often a function of social work. Uh, working with the family. Um, so, you know, they're important partners with mm -hmm. us sure. in the ethics consultation process. And then uh, secondarily to that, equally important, but secondarily, it's not just about who decides, but what the decision will be. And it's often the question of what the decision will be that is the source of disagreement uh, among the people involved. So bottom line is you lay out what needs to be determined to move forward but then what happens? Assuming a living will can't be found? Well, it's, so this is the, um, it's so important to have um, a family meeting where you have all the players in the room at the same time so that the physicians can lay out what they think is likely to, to happen in this situation. In this, in this case, the physicians felt this man was never going to recover and he was going to, he was going to pass away. It was just a matter of how. And understand why the sons, what is their motivation or rationale for continuing aggressive treatment? We try and switch the subject from what do you want to do to what do you think your father would want in this situation? Kind of have the, give them the opportunity to reset their thinking. So how did it end up? Well, in this case, as it turned out, the living will did in fact exist. It did suggest that this uh, gentleman would not want aggressive treatment. And in the context of a family meeting between the discussion with the physicians and the living will, the, the decision was made to transition to comfort care, which seemed to be, as Rob has talked about, honoring what the patient's wishes were. So what's the underlying bottom line point here? So an important message that comes out of this case is the value of putting your wishes in writing, which this patient did, um, making that document available to others, which was a question here, and appointing someone as your healthcare proxy to make decisions for you and follow those wishes. So in this case, um, you would have chosen perhaps one of your sons, and it would have been clear who made the decision and what the basis for that decision would be to honor your own wishes. Very important information. I'm going to ask you guys to consider coming back another time so we can talk more about these kinds of cases because I think there's a lot here to discuss. Thank you so very much. My guests have been Dr. Thomas Kern, a physician, assistant professor of bioethics and humanities, and Robert Olick, a lawyer and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. How best do we help those who are ill, those who suffer? We obviously have good intentions, but we often fear we will say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. 
two of our poets offer us different but wonderful ways to approach this situation. First up is Elizabeth Brule Farrell, whose latest work appears in Spillway, Pilgrimage, and Stand There Shining. Here is her poem, Fixing It. I have purple on my palms from helping you with the plumbing. You said you needed me to put pressure on the new faucet you were installing. You asked me, weak in my hands and wrists, diseased with fibrosing and carpal tunnel, to press down as hard as I could as though stopping bleeding, saving a life. The pain riveted through my body, yet I continued in order to be of use, in order to fix something together. For a very different view of helping, Donna Emerson gives us a place to lie back. I knew you needed to talk about the bed. You wanted a new one, found out Sears had a sale. They could drive it right into your trailer park, bring it in the side door if someone could move the car out of the way. It didn't matter that you had two weeks to live, that you couldn't walk or turn yourself anymore. No one wanted to entertain this bed at your house. Your wife thought you'd gone loco. Your brother worried about cost. Your minister suggested planning your funeral bed. You thought there was plenty of time for doomsday drivel. You asked if I could move the car. I said, sure, for your bed I'd do it. You were so happy you cried and cried harder while I held your big chapped hand. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air takes a look at some exciting research projects taking place in Syracuse. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.